Over the next week, we continued to expand the northern and southeastern test pits out horizontally. We had decided that I would continue to work in my trench, since I'd found material there relating directly to my dissertation topic, while James decided to concentrate the majority of our efforts on the southeastern trench. If we were dealing with architectural features and associated artifact assemblages, we reasoned we couldn't yet rely on our newly assembled local excavation team to lead the delicate recovery and properly collect samples while filling out paperwork. I retained Barak at the North Pit as an assistant, but asked Ismail to join the others in the southeastern trench. Throughout the week, I continued to widen my search for the perimeter of the bone midden along the exposed plaster wall, collecting a glut of osteological samples I've recognized as belonging mostly to caprids, sheep and goat or whatever their undomesticated antecessor. There was also a great amount of small fish bones littering the trash heap, and just eyeballing my assemblage, I had also identified the rib of a bovid and even the femur of a lion. Meanwhile, James led the remaining workers in further revealing the architectural features we had discovered in our initial penetrations of the southeast trench. Over that first day of digging, it had already become clear that the building that the expanded excavation had revealed by following the initially exposed plaster wall was a rectangular house, which we referred to in our notes from then on as Structure A. Over the course of the week, we determined that Structure A's wall stood 2.75 meters tall, and its dimensions were roughly 3 meters by 10 meters. Our working interpretation of Structure A was that it represented a domestic house. We based this interpretation firstly on the hearth feature found just within the interior, north of the southern wall we had first uncovered, an area of the structure that we had named Room A. Room A included an artifactual assemblage that consisted of a stone bowl and pestle that we interpreted as culinary implements, as well as finding a great deal of bone and charred seed samples found through sifting. There was little in the way of room segmentation in Structure A, and indeed, no door to the outside. Further excavation past the western wall revealed the exterior wall of a building of similar proportion, separated from Structure A by a corridor that extended only a sixth of a meter in width. This spurred us to conjecture that the site at Choban Tepeshi must have been densely occupied, and James further suggested it might be possible for individuals to travel throughout the site by walking over the now perished roofs and descending down into the interior of houses by way of a ladder set beneath a moon roof in the ceiling. The next area in Structure A that we identified, Room B, again characterized as its own cell, not by any evidence of walling or architectural segmentation, but instead by artifact scatter, was a long room, easily twice the size of the two adjacent rooms. This second room we characterized as a feasting hall, on the basis of the great volume of animal bones, some quite large, that were found after sifting to reveal the plaster-smoothed floor beneath. Given the length of the room that was uncovered, the faunal refuse, and its proximity to the hearth feature of room A, we imagine this to be a dining room, where a large family, perhaps of up to 45 individuals, might gather to eat within a central space. This characterization of room B was also strengthened by the presence of several ideological artifacts and features found in the hall. Most spectacularly, across the wall were painted brilliant frescoes, Mural 1 and Mural 2. Here, I will have to hazard my own, likely flawed, interpretation of the artwork as I describe the motifs. Mural 1 depicted a scene of spectacular figural art, reminiscent of the incredible Paleolithic cave paintings of Lascaux. It was a vivid scene of a multitude of animals and humans intermingling in a field. It showed a group of men, holding spears and clubs, stalking the grasslands and chasing a pleroma of wild animals that included aurochs, lions, gazelles, wolves, and eagles. The hunters approached them, hurling forth adolatl-propelled spears and piercing them. The most arresting detail of the hunt tableau 
was the vivid depiction of a bull aurochs writhing on its belly, a geyser of still bold red ochre exploding from its spear pincushioned hide. It was really something. Corroborating this hunt motif along the floor were found a sizable collection of obsidian spearheads, masterfully napped, which we conjectured may have been hung on the wall over the paintings as display weapons. The scene of Mural 2 was less cataclysmic, but just as busy and mesmerizing. In the center of the wall was painted the likeness of an enormous aurochs, its hide and bold black silhouette, its eyes wide and pupilless, its horns ornamented by a mosaic of speckled stones and seashells inlaid into the wall. Around the aurochs gathered a crowd of people all reaching a hand or an arm towards the bull, as if reaching in and drawing out pieces from it. Some of the figures around the bull even held white lengths of bone and red bits of flesh which they drew towards their mouths. Groups sat on the ground, cupping little bowls in their hands. Perhaps this was the earliest ever evidence of fermented beverage consumption. All around the perimeter of the bull crowded the small, drawn figures of men and women, identified only by the heft and curves of their stature. Some figures appeared smaller than others, perhaps denoting people of lesser social rank or the presence of children. The largest figure, a man who loomed over the bull's center, held a spear stuck into its spine, the man himself sporting a spectacular crown of thorny antlers. In a ring of figures that surrounded the scene, a great multitude of pairs and trios seemed to engage in graphic acts of coitus, with pronounced focus on the rendering of genitals depicting penis and vagina penetrative sex acts between men and women, or anal sex between men and men and men and women. The homosexual female coupling was noticeably absent. We took Mural 2 to represent the celebration of a communal feast which could have easily taken place in this very room. This was further corroborated by the discovery of as many as four plastered Bucrania, just like the one found on our first soundings in the Western Trench, which had been affixed to the interior walls flanking both murals. Perhaps these skulls were trophies commemorating the return of triumphant hunting parties. Room C located just north of Room B, and of a slightly larger area lengthwise than the hearth place of Room A, yielded a great number of unique artifacts, though it was very difficult to determine a particular use for the space. These interesting artifacts included a whistle fashioned from gazelle bone, a festive mask made from clay, with a minimalistic face which sported a jovial but faintly sinister wide-toothed grin and a collection of thirteen clay figurines, three of which were animals, a gazelle, a lion, and an eagle, two of which were humanoid figures with indeterminate sexual presentation, and a whopping seven of which were hybrid humanoid figures with animal features. Alongside the northeastern corner of Room C, we also found a small cache of cosmetic artifacts. These included small shells of the saltwater mollusk species Cerithium lividulum, which contained traces of coal and other minerals which may have been used as mixing bowls in the application of body paint. There was also a comb hewn from a caprid's bone, and a collection of drilled stone beads and perforated shells that must have been used for jewelry. These items suggested widespread established trade relationships even this far back into the Neolithic. We also found a barbed stingray spine that James ventured to suggest might have been used for tattooing or scarification, though I was more skeptical. The walls of Room C also presented three more murals, Mural 3, 4, and 5. There is little of interpretive value to be gleaned from Mural 3 and 4, as they are geometric patterns, though their design might be reminiscent of natural forms. In the case of Mural 3, the zigzagging whites and blacks of a certain species of freshwater fish, Acanthobrama orontis, confirmed as a staple of the diet by my faunal analysis in the Northern Trench. Mural 4 consisted of black on deep yellow polka dots that seemed clearly inspired by the coat of a leopard. Mural 5, however, astounded us. We immediately recognized it as perhaps the most significant discovery found on the site. 
Mural 5 was a portrait of what must have been the whole settlement itself in its heyday. The composition centered on the twin peaks of the mountains overhanging the valley. It was a multitude of box-shaped houses, all spilling out over on top of one another. James noticed here that the square buildings, which featured detailed windows and ladders leading over one another, must represent a bird's-eye view of the settlement from the vantage point of the crags. Above the mountains in the sky was slathered a speckled blue field of stars and a moon, and above the center of the mountaintops was a humanoid figure with the head of a bull, sitting in lotus position, its hand drawn up with its index finger raised in some gesture of salutation. So perhaps this was some kind of deity. On each of the rooftops, beneath the figure in the mountains, stood a human figure, outstretching their arms to the center of the peaks, and underneath the hive of the domestic cells stood twelve large oblong masses, which sprouted up from the ground. We guessed then that they might have represented some kind of megalithic monument, or perhaps even defensive towers. No outline of walls encircled the self-portrait of the town at Choban Tepeshi, but a ring of scattered white jagged sticks circled the settlement, which seemed to me to be reminiscent of the vast trench of discarded refuse I was now sifting through on the northern perimeter of the site. We still could not determine the exact nature of room C, though we guessed it may have been a parlor, living room, or sleeping chambers of some kind. James suggested it was quite likely that the site inhabitants would have slept on the roof in the hot season, which, given the ardor of our working conditions, I was inclined to agree with. It was on the Thursday of that week when James and I decided to join our workmates in the village, relaxing on the eve before the weekend, and we had good reason to celebrate too. Amen had sent us the results from the first batch of radiocarbon samples I had collected in my pit, giving us a chronological range for the findings that rested somewhere between 9,100 to 7,700 years ago, 2,000 years before the birth of the first cities. We had taken a table at a cafe sitting beside the cobblestone square down from the town mosque, sharing cigarettes and a kettle of tea. Across from us, on the plaza, a procession of women and children walked through the streets, attending to little altars set out beside every house. Before he had left us, Eamon had explained that we would be in town for a local festival, the Night of the Weary. On this evening, the locals were to leave out favors for the saints or spirits that passed by in their wanderings. The offerings were sweets or devotions of some kind usually paired with a little doll-sized sewn effigy. It was likely that this tradition was relatively recent, invented by the local Christians as a kind of folkloric parallel to the nativity, and retained in the customs of the townspeople even when the faith had been driven from the region. What do you think? Do you think the town was anything like the way it is now back then? James asked. Maybe a little bit. I said, if the wedding the other day was anything to go by, people certainly still do love to blow off steam. They were hunters. They might have lived in houses, but they needed to travel to secure their food sources, James stated. The question now is to what degree, and among what other subsistence strategies, I said. <sighs> do we even really have to wonder? I mean, I suppose you do a bit. But how do you explain all those bones in your garbage pile? Well, they could have also been pastoralists. The question is, at what stage of morphological domestication are these caprid skeletons I'm turning up? They could also have easily been experimenting with horticulture to supplement their diet. For all the bravado of the hunt, we may be standing on the ground where the first grains were modified. Oh, come on, James said. You saw those murals in the feasting hall. Are you really going to second guess what's in front of your eyes? <sighs> Remember the anthropological observation that a society's leaders are usually bound to their own ideological framework well past the point of it being realistically viable. 
Maybe they started as hunters or fetishized hunting within their social formation. But how would a sedentary village of hunters be sustainable in the long run? It begs questions of our broader knowledge of the climate in the region. Was the ecosystem robust enough not to be immediately depleted by hunting parties exploiting the surrounding landscape? I'm interested in what they would have done after some kind of ecological collapse like that. Just... just think, just based on what we've seen already, he said. This culture, these first villagers, they must have cohered along the social organization of hunting parties, but... but maybe it wasn't just cooperative. Maybe they were competing. Maybe, like on that mural, securing big game was a, a prize, and it meant some reward, some prestige for the families or clans or whatever kin groups these people adhered to. Well, well. It looks like there was actually something here for an art history guy after all. It's a good thing we'll never step on each other's toes with our papers. When we awoke the next morning, we came upon a troubling sight. In the sand around our campsite, the single Turkish word, birakmak, or leave, drawn in the soil, marked a message for our consideration, a utility knife planted directly into the earth, punctuating its urgency. I don't know, did you get any bad vibes from anybody in town last night? No, everybody seemed happy to see us. I said. Maybe it's some farmer or shepherd who uses the slope. They just think they own the place and they're trying to show us who's boss. You know how landlords are, James reasoned. It's about that simple. Maybe we can talk to Mustafa about it the next time we meet him. I'm sure he can help clear up whatever animosity that's going on in the village, I suggested. The next week, I alternated between my work on the North Midden and assisting James in the excavation of the Western Trench, where we had found the Oroch Skull on the first day. The millennia-old trash heap I sifted through seemed to only stretch further and further from the northern perimeter of the mound, and I'd been unable to find any point where the wall would meet with some other intersecting architecture. All the while, I continued to collect a great volume of bones, too many now to try to identify in the field. Amidst the remains, our sifting also recovered several obsidian-napped arrow and spearheads, some showing impact fractures, which further suggested a subsistence approach centered on hunting rather than pastoralism or agronomy. As we began our excavation of the second architectural feature, which we had dubbed Structure B, in the western trench, we again found a long, rectangular complex with unsegmented tripartite placement of activity spaces. Its layout was similar to Structure A, but with an additional annexed shrine, adjoined to the main structure by a hallway leading east from the northern side of the northeast wall. However, while the general layout and dimensions of Structure B showed obvious parallels to Structure A, with the exception of the additional rooms, the artifactual assemblage associated found within pointed towards an entirely different function from the other building. Room A of Structure B, the most similar space to its counterpart in Structure A, consisted of a similar kitchen area, which yielded several stone bowls and vessels found around a stone hearth feature. An accumulation of charred poppy seeds was found on the floor, possibly pointing towards the use of opium. There was, however, a dearth of animal bones in comparison to the eco-factual refuse sifted from Structure A, Room A. Room B was neither as long nor as wide as its Structure A counterpart. The artifactual assemblage here was quite different as well. The finds consisted of several artifacts such as stone scrapers, stingray spines, mallets swarmed of deer antlers, canid teeth, bear, lion, and leopard claws, and an impressively napped obsidian knife. Also found were several large brick-like slabs of clay which had petrified from the lack of moisture 
and a large cache of shells and precious stones such as lapis lazuli. On the floor, we discovered a handful of figurines punctured with stingray spines, and a ball of clay which had rather hauntingly been molded into a little face with the proportions of an infant. We interpreted this space as the remains of some kind of craft production station or workshop. There was another painting, Mural 6, that lay opposite these production artifacts. Mural 6 depicted a scene that appeared to eerily parallel the hunt of Mural 1 and Structure A. Here, again, there was a hurried and frenetic energy to the various human and animal figures slathered across the wall, but the roles seemed comedically reversed. Here, a group of upright humanoid figures with hybrid animal features, such as tails, claws, talons, beaks, snouts, horns, wings, and accentuated carnivore teeth, burst forth from the northern end of the wall, launching themselves, baring their fangs, and snarling at a troop of frightened game. Lions, aurochs, leopards, foxes, and wolves, who seemed to alternately retreat or trepidatiously hold their position, defending against their beastman assailants with spears and stones. In the center of the scene, three of the hybrid man-animals surrounded a bull aurochs, the foremost beast-man holding it down by the nape and tearing at its hide with his teeth, while his two accomplices rent the poor bull's rump, tearing forth both its hind legs with their arms in a spectacular spilling of red. The purpose of the northernmost room of Structure B, Room C, with its entrance to the shrine leading through its eastern wall, seems to have been a place of indeterminate cultic activity. In this room, we found an assemblage of what might be characterized as ceremonial objects, such as several clay masks, perforated bone whistles, and another obsidian dagger. In this room, the plastered flooring had shown special signs of wear and tear, perhaps suggesting the space was used for some kind of dancing. Room C held two more elaborate and spectacular murals, Mural 7 on the west wall, opposite the shrine entrance, and Mural 8 on the north wall. Mural 7 depicted a ghoulish and terrifying ritual tableau. Across a red sky was slathered a flock of great black birds, most merely V and M-shaped silhouettes in the distance, but some depicted in full detail as hook-beaked vultures and sharp-taloned eagles. The scavengers hovered over a long row of humanoid figures, shown only in bust or from the torso up, and encased in mounds from the waist down. The men who lay trapped, half of whom were merely chalk-white skulls and bones, wore pained and open-mouthed expressions of terror and anguish as the birds descended upon their features. In the dead center of the mural, a screaming man cried out as a vulture flew off, drawing an eyeball out of his charcoal-black socket. Two of the eagles retreated, carrying the heads of their human prey in their clutches, and a few of the encased bodies bore empty stumps where the birds seemed to have decapitated them. The grisly scene puzzled us. Was this an especially cruel way to execute prisoners by way of exposure? A funerary practice of sky burial, as with those that still occur in the mountains of Tibet and Nepal, or perhaps some ceremonial ordeal reached at the end of one's natural life. The final well-preserved mural that we encountered in the unearthed buildings, Mural 8, was the most puzzling of the bunch. It again centered the same humanoid figure with a bovid head this time towering over the structure's wall and bordered by some kind of litter or box. The figure, likely a deity, again sat in lotus position. At his feet before him stood a multitudinous row of small human figures, waving their arms in deference or prostration. Each side of the horned deity looming over him stood a row of seven tall figures, each with the head of a different animal. Ibex, ram, boar, canid, lion, fox, and vulture. Atop and beneath the scene jutted a stylized row of bell-ended erect phalluses. 
And to either side, beneath the horned figure, ride the great mass of figures engaged in frantic coitus. Here the spectrum of sexual acts was further expanded from merely male-on-female and male-on-male sex, but now included men coupling with bovids, men and women partnering with canids, and a woman straddling the white outline of a skeleton. Once again, woman-on-woman -woman sexual practices remained conspicuously absent. The walled shaft corridor that led to room E we had decided to categorize as room D, simply for the sake of completion. Little was found upon the ground, save some burnt seeds, and if there had been frescoes upon the wall, they had been too poorly preserved to identify, their pigment having faded beneath a layer of soot. In the Annex Shrine, room E, we found a row of nine human heads. Each a man between the ages of seventeen and seventy-five. These were not merely bare skulls, but looked out at us as true faces, with skin in the apparent likeness of their fleshy visage, molded onto them in cracked clay their hollow sockets inlaid with haunting white, peopleless shells. They seemed so ghoulish, not like shockingly preserved portraits of real people, but as if captive souls trapped and mangled in a kind of stasis. Especially disturbing were the few clay-fleshed skulls which lacked mandibles, leaving their frozen expressions vacuous. Beneath the skulls were laid out the remains of a great variety of well-preserved offerings, such as bones, seeds, beads, wild animal claws and teeth, and several worked stone pieces, along with piles of charred botanical ash, which we interpreted as burnt incense. They were doing some kinds of drugs in the rituals, James said, I think it was psychedelic mushrooms. Those toadstool-shaped dicks in the murals looked a lot like a local variety of psilocybe cubensis. There's no evidence of that, I said, other than your grasping interpretation of another culture's symbolic register. We do know they had opium, or at least that they were cultivating poppy flowers, but it's a depressant. I suppose the drinking scene from the feast mural might suggest they had access to some sort of fermented beverage, and alcohol was the central sacrament of the shamanistic traditions of Mesoamerican civilizations like the Aztec. Maybe they fermented honey to make a kind of mead before they had domesticated grain, he said. For that matter, Xenophon describes an army in Anatolia who were driven to madness after consuming a kind of psychotropic nectar produced by a species of hornet. Certainly, access to that kind of a natural pharmacology wouldn't be unheard of for a tribal society. I said. The hunters could have also boiled down ephedra, he said, which was probably the stimulant the pre-Zoroastrian heroes imbibe in the Avestan Gathas. Oh, come on. Between thousands of years with no historical connection between them? That's really quite a leap for you to be making. I'd agree these are all possibilities, yes, but given what we found, this is all baseless conjecture. No, Eric, you're wrong. Remember Mural 7 and the hunting scenes? Remember the figurines we keep finding? In all the iconography, there is a theme of the blurring of the lines between human and animal. Hybrids. Men with animal bodies. Animals with human abilities. Uh, this is one of the most prominent recurring themes of a shamanic tradition. <sighs> well, you've got me there. What's interesting to me is what animals seem to be appearing in the imagery. No dogs, no sheep, no donkeys, just wild beasts. You know, now that I think of those mushroom dicks again, James said, something that's really interesting to me is, like, how little femininity we've actually seen in any of the artwork. What do you mean? Like, like there's no, there's no women, no tits, no ass, just dicks and horns. It's like, you know how the feminists all kind of stereotype the age before agriculture in cities as this kind of like, um, 
this idyllic matriarchal utopia. A time before inequality, a time before warfare, where everybody huddled under the skirt of the mother goddess. But what if it wasn't? What if, what if before agriculture, before people's livelihood were tied to the earth and the cycles of the moon, and feats of strength on the hunt won the day? Maybe it was a masculine god, a supernatural centered around a kind of masculine virility that formed the center of these people's spirituality. <sighs> well, I don't know about any of that. Sounds kind of Freudian to me. But I am genuinely curious what you think of those skulls. Yeah, that is a good question, James said. Maybe they're trophies. There's plenty of ethnographic evidence for headhunting among tribe and chiefdom-level societies. The Nazca civilization of Peru's coast even strung them as ornaments for warriors. And out in the desert, they still find them with their skin and their hair and everything. Yeah, but is there anything to suggest the people here were engaged in any kind of warfare? There isn't any interpersonal combat depicted on any of the murals, and the view of the town from Mural 5 didn't seem to feature anything suggesting defensive walls around the settlement. No, that's... that's right. I don't know. I just think... I think there's something to the way they molded clay onto the skulls, like skin. It's like they were trying to preserve the sense of them being alive, the sense of identity. Maybe it was some kind of ancestor cult. That doesn't sound too far off to me. That night, the wind rose again over the mountain, and those same strange cries and callings returned only now joined by the heaving groans of guttural snarling that seemed to reverberate from not far above us on the hill. This time, neither of us could ignore it. We sat up in our tent trying to figure out what it was. Stray dogs, a badger, maybe some nocturnal wildcats in heat. Whatever it was, neither of us dared leave our sleeping bags to find out. The next morning, we opened up to find ourselves gazed upon by a gang of scraggly vultures which had perched themselves in the perimeter of our campsite. In the sky, a whole flock of them soared above us, circling over an exposed outcrop further above the mound. We followed the scavengers to find them picking over a gnarled and warped carcass. We couldn't really make any sense of what it was. At first, it seemed like it was maybe some animal that had died of dehydration and been naturally tanned and mummified by the arid conditions on the slope. But the bits of carrion that the vultures picked at were still fleshy and wet. Its teeth seemed to curl at a strange angle, its eye sockets vacant and gaping. Its leathery skin flapped in the wind as it lay upon the ground, adorned in a row of vast claws that hung from the limbs. Its bones were scattered and spread across the earth, likely torn apart by the birds, but I still struggled to gain any sense of its stature. What the fuck is that? I muttered. Some dead animal, obviously, James said. Yeah, but what was it? James shrugged. Maybe a stray from the town that got lost up here? Maybe one of the shepherd's sheep that lost its flock? But if it's dried out like this, it had to have been up here for a long time, and it just wasn't here yesterday, I said. Yeah, it's strange, that's for sure. In the third week of the project, after we had finished our excavation of the extant interiors of Structure A and Structure B, we continued to dig through the flooring of the houses. An initial small stratigraphic sample had uncovered evidence for several replastering events, which suggested that under the floor might lie evidence of earlier sequences of building occupation. 
We recovered micro-refuse samples from these past flooring layers, but more importantly, we revealed evidence of seven burials which had been laid under the houses. There wasn't anything inherently strange about the discovery of human burials under the floor. Ethnographic analogies for household burial could be made with cultures as disparate as Bronze Age Mesopotamia, all the way to the ancient Pueblo cultures of the North American Southwest. But it was the laconic presentation of the bodies that was curious to us. We recovered the remains of four individuals from beneath Structure A. Individual one was a female between 10 and 12 years of age. She lay stretched out with her arms raised as if in a pose of religious prostration or of mourning. Around her was placed a wreath of shells and precious stones, likely the remains of an elaborate necklace. The girl was also buried with two clay figurines, one bearing feminine traits, the other masculine, but with a bull's face and feet terminating in smoothened hooves. Individual two was a female between 23 and 27 years of age. Like the parallel placed individual one, she was stretched out with her arms raised above her shoulders. She had worn a necklace of interchanging lapis lazuli and carnelian laid across her chest. The young woman's cause of death seemed to have been a fatal skull fracture, still visible on her forehead, the product of some blunt force trauma. Individual three was a female between 61 and 66 years of age. She was curled up in fetal position. Her head and hands had been replaced by the skull and paws of a fox. Around her stretched a ring of snake skeletons, eight serpents in all. She had been buried with several offerings of marine conch shells, obsidian arrowheads, ammonite fossils, and pollen residue found around the burial which suggested a carpet of flowers had been laid out on top of her. The old woman must have been important to the community. Individual four was a male between six and eight years of age. He was laid out in fetal position, his head tucked between his knees. His hands, feet, and head were replaced by the paws and skull of a juvenile canid. Even the vertebrae of a little puppy's tail were tucked between the little boy's legs. Then, there were three individuals found beneath structure B. Individual 5 was a male between 69 and 75 years of age. He was laid splayed out, his arms and legs stretched as if making snow angels in the dirt. His skull was missing, replaced with the beak of a vulture. In the place of his digits on each hand rested five raptor talons. Above his shoulders, between his armpits, and flanking his thighs stretched parallel wing bones of some kind of large predatory bird, with a wingspan measuring between six and nine meters. This vulture imagery seemed to link individual five with the scavenger scene of mural seven. Individual six was a male between 47 and 53 years of age. Individual six had been divvied into pieces and strewn across structure B. His torso was collapsed into a cluster of ribs and vertebrae, arrayed with his pelvis and deposited in the center of the room. His arms and legs were buried in the north, east, west, and south corners of the room. His head was conspicuously absent, though we strongly felt that the skulls of individual five and individual six were likely to be found in the cluster of preserved and modified skulls discovered in the shrine off of room E. Individual seven was a male between 19 and 23 years of age. He lay straight on his back, his arms crossed and hugging his shoulders, except that everything beyond his wrists had been replaced by the remains of a lion's paws. We even recovered a thin bone needle, which must have been used to sew the animal parts of the young man's flesh. His legs, also, had been replaced by a lion's. In his hands, he embraced a large and exquisitely napped obsidian spearhead, just like the ones recovered from room B of structure A. Unlike most of the others, individual seven retained his skull. In fact, its presentation was deeply arresting. His head was surrounded by a halo of lion's teeth, perhaps suggesting a male lion's mane. A visible slash across individual seven's neck bones clearly signaled that the young man had been garroted.
on account of our lack of workers that Friday, it didn't seem like there was much value to continuing with the excavation. Instead, given its recurring prominence in the murals, James suggested that we should hike up the mountains overlooking the valley to see if we might find evidence of any satellite sites, and to see if we could trace any ancient paths that might have been used to traverse the area. As we approached, I could see why such a landscape feature would leave such a dramatic impression on the valley's ancient inhabitants, as the side of the mountains from the vantage of our approach truly did resemble a horned man's face in profile. We trudged our way further up the steep incline towards the peaks, which eventually opened up to a dusty plateau. From here, James and I could see the whole valley below us. There was a constant and cool breeze, and here, from this point, I stopped to rest while James continued to wander the level path around the length of the peaks. Looking down, I wondered how the whole valley must have looked in ancient days, imagining hunters tracking herds of game in the lush grasslands where now a dusty and arid desert had choked the region. It wasn't long after I had lost myself in the majesty of the landscape when I heard James crying out, Eric! his voice echoing across the rock face but almost muffled by the strong and constant Eric! breeze. I shot to my feet and immediately rushed towards the narrow path that ran along the cliffs, calling frantically to James and listening carefully for his voice in response. Eric! I heard echo from the valley below me. I'm down here! I cautiously approached the edge of the path looking down, fearful that the dirt beneath my boots should slip and hurl me down the cliffside to my death. Luckily, my vertigo was eased by the revelation of another dirt platform which lay beneath the path where James sat calling up to me. I cautiously slid my way down to meet him. Are you okay? I think so. I just slipped down that thing and got shaken. Hurt my leg a bit too. I looked down to see blood pooling through the pant leg of James's beige cargoes. I, I don't think it's broken, but it's scraped up pretty bad. Really smarts. I helped James up onto his feet and listened as he hissed through his teeth at the searing pain. You okay? You good to move? Yeah, now it doesn't seem broken, but it sure hurts like a motherfucker. Of, of course. Let's go back. We can run it under some water and disinfectant and bandage it. Wait. James interrupted me. What? He pointed towards a gap in the mountain face in front of us, which formed a narrow and shadowy corridor that seemed to cut into the recesses of the cliff. Did you bring the flashlight? You want to go in there? Now? We can always come back when you're bandaged up. We don't have to- Oh, come on, he said. Don't worry about it. It's just a scratch. I didn't come hiking all the way up here for nothing. We don't have any helmets or spelunking equipment or anything. Look, let's just go in and see what's there. If the terrain gets difficult, we'll turn right back, James insisted. I sighed and clicked on the light. Almost the moment we had squeezed through the narrow entrance, it was already pitch black, and so necessary for us to rely on torchlight for our passage. Once we had crossed the initial threshold, we found ourselves in the wider corridor, with a high ceiling, although we needed to be cautious not to bump into the forest of stalagmites and stalactites that jutted from the floor and the roof, reminiscent of the fairy chimney rock features that lay just 70 kilometers north of us. The cave seemed to descend at a slow ramp and spiraled around down through the mountain. The floor was damp, and the sound of dripping water echoed throughout the chamber. Several shallow poolings and a small stream trickled across the cave floor, and our flashlights revealed a carpet of thick sediment with a bold reddish-orange hue. Perhaps this cave had been the source of the clay utilized in the ancient town's construction. I had to slow down several times to be careful not to slip on the slick and angled floor, 
but James pressed onward in front of me, unfazed. Our descent, a rustling and shaking, seemed to rush past above us. James and I shined our torches up to see a great flock of black shadows stirring and sputtering across the cave ceiling. Rather than the bats, it was the other sight captured by our flashlights that filled me with a pain of dread. A fiendish face smiled down at us, its pale flesh round and lumpy. The stalactites had been sculpted, resembling buxom women with chiropteran features. Along the caryatid's length tittered a thronging of black wings, as if the bats suckled at their chimeric mother. As we continued through the cave, we found these modified stalagmites and stalactites to be even more pervasive. Many of the rock spires jutting up from the ground had been modified to resemble penises or perhaps fungi, while more rotund monoliths carried the impression of voluptuous women. In one particular example of the feminine stone bodies, we noticed a small hole had been born at the stone's base. Many of the stones carried the features of ferocious fang-toothed monsters and wild animals such as bears and lions looming in the darkness. Scanning the gallery with her flashlights, the stalagmites seemed to cast strange shadows on the stony walls that resembled the shapes of animals and people in ways too uncanny to be natural. Finally, after a long walk down the cavern's decline, found ourselves in the center of a large chamber. What shocked us immediately was a feature carved out of the far side wall which consisted of a large, roughly rectangular platform. It was formed out of the solid rock, warped by the dripping of water, and seemingly modified, smoothly polished to beveled edges. Must have been some kind of altar or throne. Beside the throne, an entourage of ancient stony faces and obscenities peered upon us in the dark. In the fourth week, we decided to open up a third test pit. We reviewed the site plans and agreed to place the new trench exactly in the middle of a line that could be traced between the western and southeastern pits. The trench descended only three quarters of a meter when our shovels scraped something in the corner. James and I dove in, relieving the workmen to intricately and carefully trowel our way down by hand. Only a few hours later, we lay beside one another in the ditch, staring at a face. A face with wide eyes, white as seashells, a sculpted, furrowed brow, and a scowling mouth of bared, knife-like feline teeth and boar tusks. From its head protruded the horns of an aurochs, rising out from the revealed depression. The face was embossed upon a large and wide dirt slab that seemed to sprout up from deep out of the earth, as if a great termite nest. The scale of the monument was staggering, something akin to the megaliths of Stonehenge, but piled and molded by hand. It took the entire day for us to slowly reveal the great mountainous pile of clay, and with each ounce of sand we sifted through, we revealed another ornament stretching from its trunk. All the way down its lumpy hide jutted claws and outgrowths, the talons of raptors, the fangs of predators, and the antlers of wild things. Even patterns of natural camouflage and the texture of different kinds of fur and feathers had been carefully traced and embroidered in decoration. The spots of a leopard dotted by the impression of dark stones, the speckled down of an eagle mottled in shells, and bands of charred black and red ochre, like the tail of a fox. When we had reached its base, we measured the obelisk from the floor depth of structures A and B to stand about 2.5 meters in height. Its bulbous body was tapered around its shoulders into a roughly humanoid shape, like some kind of macabre snowman of packed dirt. It was some terrible amalgam of man and animal, the dreams and nightmares of a primitive society made flesh. 
Once James had begun to expose the monuments in earnest, he had even revealed the corner of another second monument while clearing out his pit, I spent the rest of the week extending the northern trench further in search of the edge of the trash midden, but to no avail. The extent of the bone scatter only continued to expand and broaden. I had followed it out long enough to come to the conclusion that it was not simply a midden, but a long dumping ground that must have formed a ring around the perimeter of the site. The inhabitants of Choban Tepeshi must have simply cast their trash out from their houses and onto the edge of the settlement. Still, we combed through mountains of wild animal bones, and I was beginning to have a staggering sense of just how many hunts and feasts the ancient inhabitants must have partaken of over however many hundreds of years. As I continued to sift, I was beginning to consider abandoning the garbage pit for the season and opening up new trenches in the domestic area of the site, when I heard men yelling from across the mound. I abandoned my post and marched towards James's trench, where a handful of the workers berated him and threw down their shovels and ire. By the time I had arrived on the scene, the workers had already begun to leave. Wait! Wait! I called to them as they descended the slope. Yeah, well if you're leaving now, don't even dream of coming back! James shouted. What the fuck happened? I growled at James. James pouted and shrugged like a put-upon toddler. I don't know. They just stopped working on the obelisk and started yelling at me. What the fuck are we gonna do then? We have five pits open and only the two of us to work them! I cried. Look, don't worry. We'll have Eamon find some undergrads in Ankara to take over as interns, and then we that can- That sets us back at least another week. And we need the locals to support the dig. I can't believe you fucked this up. Me? He sneered. I didn't do anything. They took one look at the exposed feature and split. In anger, I threw down the shovel I held and screamed, my cry echoing through the crags of the peaks and the valley below.